Part One, Chapter Fifteen of the Fair Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fair Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Fifteen. Fifteen miles from Cape Bathurst. Summer had now commenced and as upon the most favourable calculation only three more weeks would intervene before the bad season set in and interrupted the labours of the explorers. The greatest haste was necessary in completing the new buildings, and Mac Nab and his workmen surpassed themselves in industry. The dog-house was on the eve of being finished, and very little remained to be done to the palisading which was to encircle the fort. An inner court had been constructed in the shape of a half-moon, fenced with tall pointed stakes, fifteen feet high, to which a postern gave entrance. Jasper Hobson favoured the system of an unbroken enclosure with detached forts, a great improvement upon the tactics of Vauban and Cormontage, and knew that to make his defence complete, the summit of Cape Bathurst, which was the key of the position, must be fortified. Until that could be done, however, he thought the palisading would be a sufficient protection, at least against quadrupeds. The next thing was to lay in a supply of oil and lights, and accordingly an expedition was organized to a spot about fifteen miles distant where seals were plentiful. Mrs. Paulina Barnett, being invited to accompany the sportsmen, not indeed for the sake of watching the poor creature slaughtered, but to satisfy her curiosity with regard to the country around Cape Bathurst, and to see some cliffs on that part of the coast which were worthy of notice. The lieutenant chose as his other companions Sergeant Long and the soldiers Peterson, Hope, and Calais, and the party set off at eight o'clock in the morning in two sledges, each drawn by six dogs, on which the bodies of the seals were to be brought back. The weather was fine, but the fog which lay low along the horizon veiled the rays of the sun, whose yellow disk was now beginning to disappear for some hours during the night, a circumstance which attracted the lieutenant's attention, for reasons which we will explain. That part of the shore to the west of Cape Bathurst rises but a few inches above the level of the sea, and the tides are, or are said, to be very high in the Arctic Ocean. Many navigators, such as Perry, Franklin, the two Rosses, McClure, and McClintock, having observed that when the sun and moon were in conjunction, the waters were sometimes twenty-five feet above the ordinary level. How, then, was it to be explained that the sea did not at high tide inundate Cape Bathurst, which possessed no natural defences, such as cliffs or downs? What was it, in fact, which prevented the entire submersion of the whole district? and the meeting of the waters of the lake with those of the arctic ocean jasper hobson could not refrain from remarking on this peculiarity to mrs barnett who replied somewhat hastily that she supposed that there were in spite of all that had been said to the contrary no tides in the arctic ocean on the contrary madam said hobson all navigators agree that the ebb and flow of polar seas are very distinctly marked and it is impossible to believe that they can have been mistaken on such a subject. "'How is it, then,' inquired Mrs. Barnett, "'that this land is not flooded when it is scarcely ten feet above the sea-level at low tide?' "'That is just what puzzles me,' said Hobson, "'for I have been attentively watching the tides all through this month, and during that time they have not varied more than a foot. 
and I feel certain that even during the September equinox they will not rise more than a foot and a half all along the shores of Cape Bathurst. "'Can you not explain this phenomenon?' inquired Mrs. Barnett. "'Well, madam,' replied the lieutenant, Two conclusions are open to us, either of which I find it difficult to believe. Such men as Franklin, Perry, Ross, and others are mistaken, and there are no tides on this part of the American coast. Or, as in the Mediterranean, to which the waters of the Atlantic have not free ingress, the straits are too narrow to be affected by the ocean currents. The latter would appear to be the more reasonable hypothesis, Mr. Hobson. It is not, however, thoroughly satisfactory said the lieutenant, and I feel sure that if we could but find it, there is some simple and natural explanation of the phenomenon. After a monotonous journey along a flat and sandy shore, the party reached their destination, and, having unharnessed the teams, they were left behind unless they should startle the seals. At the first glance around them, all were equally struck with the contrast between the appearance of this district and that of Cape Bathurst. Here the coastline was broken and fretted, showing manifest traces of its igneous origin, whereas the site of the fort was of sedimentary formation and aqueous origin. Stone, so conspicuously absent at the cape, was here plentiful. The black sand and porous lava were strewn with huge boulders deeply embedded in the soil, and there were large quantities of the aluminum, silica, and feldspar pebbles peculiar to the crystalline strata of one class of igneous rocks. Glittering Labrador stones and many other kinds of feldspar, red, green, and blue, were sprinkled on the unfrequented beach, with grey and yellow pumice stone, and lustrous variegated obsidian. Tall cliffs, rising some two hundred feet above the sea, frowned down upon the bay, and the lieutenant resolved to climb them and obtain a good view of the eastern side of the country. For this there was plenty of time, as but few of the creatures they had come to seek were as yet to be seen, and the proper time for the attack would be when they assembled for the afternoon siesta, in which the amphibious mammalia always indulge. The lieutenant, however, quickly discovered that the animals frequenting this coast were not, as he had been led to suppose, true seals, although they belonged to the Phocidiae family, but morses or walruses, sometimes called sea-cows. They resemble the seals in general form, but the canine teeth of the upper jaw, curved downwards, are much more largely developed. Following the coastline, which curved considerably, and to which they gave the name of Walrus's Bay, the party soon reached the foot of the cliff, and Peterson, Hope, and Calais took up their positions as sentinels on the little promontory, whilst Mrs. Barnett, Hobson and Long, after promising not to lose sight of their comrades and to be on the lookout for their signal, proceeded to climb the cliff, the summit of which they reached in about a quarter of an hour. From this position they were able to survey the whole surrounding country. At their feet lay the vast sea, stretching northward as far as the eye could reach, its expanse so entirely unbroken by islands or icebergs that the travellers came to the conclusion that this portion of the arctic waters was navigable as far as bering straits and that during the summer season the northwest passage to cape bathurst would be open to the company ships on the west the aspect of the country explained the presence of the volcanic debris on the shore for at a distance of about ten miles was a chain of granitic hills of conical form 
with blunted crests, looking as if their summits had been cut off, and with jagged, tremulous outlines standing out against the sky. They had hitherto escaped the notice of our party, and they were concealed by the cliffs on the Cape Bathurst side. And Jasper Hobson examined them in silence, but with great attention, before he proceeded to study the eastern side, which consisted of a long strip of perfectly level coastline stretching away to Cape Bathurst. Any one provided with a good field glass would have been able to distinguish the fort of Good Hope, and perhaps even the cloud of blue smoke, which was no doubt at the very moment issuing from Mrs. Joliffe's kitchen chimney. The country behind them seemed to possess two entirely distinct characters. To the east and south the cape was bounded by a vast plain, many hundreds of square miles in extent, while behind the cliff from Walrus's Bay to the mountains mentioned above, the country had undergone terrible convulsions, showing clearly that it owed its origin to volcanic eruptions. The lieutenant was much struck with this marked contrast, and Sergeant Long asked him whether he thought the mountains on the western horizon were volcanoes. Undoubtedly, said Hobson, all these pumice-stones and pebbles have been discharged by them to this distance, and if we were to go two or three miles further, we should find ourselves treading upon nothing but lava and ashes. Do you suppose, inquired the sergeant, that all these volcanoes are still active? That I cannot tell you yet. But there is no smoke issuing from any of them, added the sergeant. That proves nothing. Your pipe is not always in your mouth, and it is just the same with volcanoes. They are not always smoking. I see, said the sergeant, but it is a great puzzle to me how volcanoes can exist at all, on polar continents. Well, there are not many of them, said Mrs. Barnett. No, madam, replied Jasper, but they are not so very rare either. They are to be found in Jan Mayen's land and the Aleutian Islands, Kamkatcha, Russian America and Iceland, as well as in the Antarctic Circle, in Tierra del Fuego and Australasia. They are the chimneys of the great furnace in the centre of the earth, where nature makes her chemical experiments, and it appears to me that the Creator of all things has taken care to place these safety valves wherever they are most needed. I suppose so, replied the sergeant, and yet it does seem very strange to find them in this icy climate. Why would they not be here as well as anywhere else, sergeant? I should say that ventilation holes are likely to be more numerous at the poles than at the equator. Why so? asked the sergeant, in much surprise. Because if these safety valves are forced open by the pressure of subterranean gases, it will most likely be at the spots where the surface of the earth is thinnest, and as the globe is flattened at the poles, it would appear natural that— But Calais is making signs to us added the lieutenant, breaking off abruptly. "'Will you join us, Mrs. Barnett?' "'No, thank you. I will stay here until we return to the fort. I don't care to watch the walrus slaughtered.' "'Very well,' replied Hobson. "'Only don't forget to join us in an hour's time. Meanwhile you can enjoy the view.' The beach was soon reached, and some hundred walruses had collected, either waddling about on their clumsy webbed feet, or sleeping in family groups. Some few of the larger males— Creatures nearly four feet long, clothed with very short reddish fur, kept guard over the herd. Great caution was required in approaching these formidable-looking animals, and the hunters took advantage of every bit of cover afforded by rocks and inequalities of the ground, 
so as to get within easy range of them, and cut off their retreat to the sea. On land these creatures are clumsy and awkward, moving in jerks or with creeping motions like huge caterpillars, but in water their native element, they are nimble and even graceful. Indeed, their strength is so great that they have been known to overturn the whalers in pursuit of them. As the hunters drew near, the sentinels took alarm, and raising their heads looked searchingly around them. But before they could warn their companions of danger, Hobson and Calais rushed upon them from one side, the sergeant, Peterson, and Hope from the other, and after lodging a ball in each of their bodies, dispatched them with their spears, whilst the rest of the herd plunged into the sea. The victory was an easy one. The five victims were very large, and their tusks, though slightly rough, of the best quality. They were chiefly valuable, however, on account of the oil, of which, being in excellent condition, they would yield a high quantity. The bodies were packed in the sledges, and proved no light weight for the dogs. It was now one o'clock, and Mrs. Barnett, having joined them, the party set out on foot, the sledges being full, to return to the fort. There were but ten miles to be traversed, but ten miles in a straight line is a weary journey, proving the truth of the adage, it is a long lane that has no turning. They beguiled the tediousness of the way by chatting pleasantly, and Mrs. Barnett was ready to join in the conversation, or to listen with interest to the accounts the worthy soldiers gave of former adventures. But in spite of the brave struggle against Enu, they advanced but slowly and the poor dogs found it hard work to drag the heavy-laden sledges over the rough ground. Had it been covered with frozen snow, the distance would have been accomplished in a couple of hours. The merciful lieutenant often ordered a halt to give the teams breathing time, and the sergeant remarked that it would be much more convenient for the inhabitants of the fort if the morses would settle a little nearer Cape Bathurst. "'They could not find a suitable spot,' replied the lieutenant, with a melancholy shake of the head. "'Why not?' inquired Mrs. Barnett, with some surprise. "'Because they only congregate where the slope of the beach is gradual enough to allow of their creeping up easily from the sea. Now Cape Bathurst rises abruptly, like a perpendicular wall, from water three hundred fathoms deep. It is possible that ages ago portions of the continent was rent away in some violent volcanic convulsion, and flung into the Arctic Ocean, hence the absence of morses on the beach of our Cape. End of chapter 15 Part 1, chapter 16 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part 1, Chapter 16 Two Shots The first half of September passed rapidly away. Had Fort Hope been situated at the pole itself, that is to say, twenty degrees further north, the polar night would have set in on the twenty-first of that month. But under the seventieth parallel, the sun would be visible above the horizon for another month. Nevertheless, the temperature was already decidedly colder. The thermometer fell during the night to thirty-one degrees Fahrenheit, and thin coatings of ice appeared here and there, to be dissolved again in the daytime. But the settlers were able to await the coming of winter without alarm. They had a more than sufficient store of provisions. Their supply of dried venison had largely increased, 
Another score of morses had been killed. The tame reindeer were warmly and comfortably housed, and a huge wooden shed behind the house was filled with fuel. In short, everything was prepared for the polar night. And now, all the wants of the inhabitants of the fort being provided for, it was time to think of the interests of the company. The arctic creatures had now assumed their winter furs, and were therefore of the greatest value, and Hobson organized shooting parties for the remainder of the fine weather, intending to set traps when the snow should prevent further excursions. They would have plenty to do to satisfy the requirements of the company, for so far north it was no use to depend on the Indians, who were generally the purveyors of the factories. The first expedition was to the haunt of a family of beavers, long since noted by the watchful lieutenant, on a tributary of the stream already referred to. It is true the fur of the beaver is not now as valuable as when it was used for hats, and fetched sixteen pounds per kilogram, rather more than two pounds. But it still commands a high price, as the animal is becoming very scarce, in consequence of the reckless way in which it had been hunted. When the party reached their destination, their lieutenant called Mrs. Barnett's attention to the great ingenuity displayed by beavers in the construction of their submarine city. There were some hundred animals in the little colony now to be invaded, and they lived together in pairs in the holes or vaults they had hollowed out near the stream. They had already commenced their preparations for the winter, and were hard at work constructing their dams and laying up their piles of wood. A dam of admirable structure had already been built across the stream, which was deep and rapid enough not to freeze far below the surface, even in the severest weather. This dam, which was convex towards the current, consisted of a collection of upright stakes, interlaced with branches and roots, the whole being cemented together and rendered watertight with the clayey mud of the river previously pounded by the animal's feet. The beavers use their tails, which are large and flat, with scales instead of hair at the root, for plastering over their buildings and beating the clay into shape. "'The object of this dam,' said the lieutenant to Mrs. Barnett, "'is to secure the beavers a sufficient depth of water at all seasons of the year, and to enable the engineers of the tribe to build the round huts, called lodges or houses, the tops of which you can just see. They are extremely solid structures, and the walls, made of stick, clay, roots, etc., are two feet thick. They can only be entered from below the water, and their owners have therefore to dive when they go home an admirable arrangement for their protection. Each lodge contains two stories. In the lower the winter stock of branches, bark, and root is laid up, and the upper is the residence of the householder and his family. "'There is, however, not a beaver in sight,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'Is this a deserted village?' "'Oh, no,' replied the lieutenant. "'The inhabitants are now all asleep and resting. "'They only work in the night, and we mean to surprise them in their holes.' This was, in fact, easily done, and in an hour's time about a hundred of the ill-fated rodents had been captured, twenty of which were of great value, their fur being black, and therefore especially esteemed.' That of the others was also long and glossy, and silky, but of a reddish hue mixed with chestnut-brown. Beneath the long fur, the beavers have a second coat of close short hair of a greyish-white colour. 
The hunters returned to the fort much delighted with the result of their expedition. The beavers' skins were warehoused and labelled as parchments or young beavers according to their value. Excursions of a similar kind were carried on throughout the month of September and during the first half of October, with equally happy results. A few badgers were taken, the skin being used as an ornament for the collars of draught-horses, and the hair for making brushes of every variety. These carnivorous creatures belonged to the bear family, and the specimens obtained by Hobson were of the genus peculiar to North America, sometimes called the taxel badger. Another animal of the rodent family, nearly as industrious as the beaver, largely contributed to the stores of the company. This was the muskrat, or musquash. Its head and body are about a foot long, and its tail ten inches. Its fur is in considerable demand. These creatures, like the rest of their family, multiply with extreme rapidity, and a great number were easily unearthed. In the pursuit of lynxes and wolverines, or gluttons, firearms had to be used. The lynx has all the suppleness and agility of the feline tribe to which it belongs, and is formidable even to the reindeer. Marbra and Sabine were, however, well up to their work, and succeeded in killing more than sixty of them. A few wolverines or gluttons were also dispatched. Their fur is reddish-brown, and that of the lynx light-red with black spots. Both are of considerable value. Very few ear-mines or stoats were seen, and Jasper Hobson ordered his men to spare any which happened to cross their path until the winter, when they should have assumed the beautiful snow-white coats with the one black spot at the tip of the tail. At present the upper fur was reddish-brown, and the under yellowish-white, so that, as Sabine expressed it, it was desirable to let them ripen, or, in other words, to wait for the cold to bleach them. Their cousins, the polecats, however, which emit so disagreeable an odour, fell victims in great numbers to the hunters, who either tracked them to their homes in hollow trees, or shot them as they glided through the branches. Martins, properly so called, were hunted with great zeal. Their fur is in considerable demand, although not so valuable as that of the sable, which becomes a dark lustrous brown in the winter. The latter did not, however, come in the way of our hunters, as it only frequents the north of Europe and Asia, as far as Kamchatka, and is chiefly hunted by the inhabitants of Siberia. They had to be content with the polecats and pine martins called Canada martins, which frequent the shores of the Arctic Ocean. All the weasels and martins are very difficult to catch. They wriggle their long supple bodies through the smallest apertures with great ease, and thus elude their pursuers. In the winter, however, they are easily taken in traps, and Marbra and Sabine looked forward to make up for the lost time then, when, said they, there shall be plenty of their furs in the company's stores. We have now only to mention the arctic or blue and silver foxes to complete the list of animals which swelled the profits of the Hudson's Bay Company. The furs of these foxes are esteemed in the Russian and English markets above all others, and that of the blue fox is the most valuable of all. This pretty creature has a black muzzle, and the fur is not as one would suppose blue, but whitish-brown. 
its great price, six times that of any other kind, arises from its superior softness, thickness, and length. A cloak belonging to the Emperor of Russia, composed entirely of fur from the neck of the blue fox, the fur from the neck is considered better than that from any other part, was shown at the London Exhibition of 1851, and valued at £3,400 sterling. Several of these foxes were sighted at Cape Bathurst, but all escaped the hunters, whilst only about a dozen silver foxes fell into their hands. The fur of the latter, of a lustrous black dotted with white, is much sought after in England and Russia, although it does not command so high a price as that of the foxes mentioned above. One of the silver foxes captured was a splendid creature, with a coal-black fur, tipped with white at the extreme end of the tail, and with a dash of the same on the forehead. The circumstances attending its death deserve relation in detail, as they proved that Hobson was right in the precautions he had taken. On the morning of the 24th September, two sledges conveyed Mrs. Barnett, the lieutenant, Sergeant Long, Marbra, and Sabine to Walrus's Bay. Some traces of foxes had been noticed the evening before amongst some rocks clothed with scanty herbage and the direction taken by the animals was very clearly indicated the hunters followed up the trail of a large animal and were rewarded by bringing down a very fine silver fox several other animals of the same species were sighted and the hunters divided into two parties marbra and sabine going after one foe and mrs barnett hobson and the sergeant trying to cut off the retreat of another fine animal hiding behind some rocks. Great caution and some artifice was necessary to deal with this crafty animal, which took care not to expose itself to a shot. The pursuit lasted for half an hour without success, but at last the poor creature, with the sea on one side and with three enemies on the other, had recourse in its desperation to a flying leap, thinking thus to escape with its life. But Hobson was too quick for it, and as it bounded by like a flash of lightning, it was struck by a shot, and to every one's surprise, the report of the lieutenant's gun was succeeded by that of another, and a second ball entered the body of the fox, which fell to the ground, mortally wounded. "'Hurrah! hurrah!' cried Hobson. "'It is mine!' "'And mine!' said another voice, and a stranger stepped forward and placed his foot upon the fox, just as the lieutenant was about to raise it. Hobson drew back in astonishment. He thought the second ball had been fired by the sergeant, and found himself face to face with a stranger, whose gun was still smoking. The rivals gazed at each other in silence. The rest of the party now approached, and the stranger was quickly joined by twelve comrades, four of whom were like himself, Canadian travellers, and eight Chippeway Indians. The leader was a tall man, a fine specimen of his class, those Canadian trappers described in the romances of Washington Irvine, whose competition Hobson's had dreaded with such good reason. He wore the traditional costume ascribed to his fellow hunters by the great American writer, a blanket loosely arranged about his person, a striped cotton shirt, wide cloth trousers, leather gaiters, deerskin moccasins, and a sash of checked woolen stuff round the waist, 
from which were suspended his knife, tobacco-pouch, pipe, and a few useful tools. Hobson was right. The man before him was a Frenchman, or at least a descendant of the French-Canadian, perhaps an agent of the American company, come to act as a spy on the settlers in the fort. The other four Canadians wore a costume resembling that of their leader, but of coarser materials. The Frenchman bowed politely to Mrs. Barnett, and the lieutenant was the first to break the silence, during which he had not removed his eyes from his rival's face. "'This fox is mine, sir,' he said quietly. "'It is, if you killed it,' replied the other in good English, but with a slightly foreign accent. "'Excuse me, sir,' he replied Hobson rather sharply. "'It is mine, in any case.' The stranger smiled, scornfully at this lofty reply. So exactly what he expected from an agent of the Hudson's Bay Company, which claimed supremacy over all the northern districts from the Atlantic to the Pacific. "'Do you mean to say,' he said at last, gracefully toying with his gun, "'that you consider the Hudson's Bay Company mistress of the whole of North America?' "'Of course I do,' said Hobson. "'And if, as I imagine, you belong to an American company,' "'To the St. Louis Fur Company,' replied the stranger with a bow. "'I think,' added the lieutenant, "'that you will find it difficult to show the grants entitling you to any privileges here.' "'Grants, privileges!' cried the Canadian scornfully. "'Old-world terms which are out of place in America.' "'You are not now on American, but English ground,' replied the lieutenant proudly. "'There is no time for such a discussion.' said the hunter rather warmly. We all know the old claims made by the English in general, and the Hudson's Bay Company in particular, to these hunting grounds, but I expect coming events will soon alter this state of things, and America will be America from the Straits of Magellan to the North Pole. I do not agree with you, replied Hobson dryly. Well, sir, however that may be, said the Canadian, let us suffer this international question to remain in abeyance for the present. Whatever rights the company may arrogate to itself, it is very clear that in the extreme north of the continent, and especially on the coast, the territory belongs to whoever occupies it. You have founded a factory on Cape Bathurst, therefore we will respect your domain, and you on your side will avoid ours. When the St. Louis fur traders have established their projected fort at another point, on the northern shore of America. The lieutenant frowned at this speech for he well knew what complications would arise in the future when the Hudson's Bay Company would be compelled to struggle for supremacy with powerful rivals, and that quarrelling and even bloodshed would ensue. He could not, however, but acknowledge that this was not the time to begin the discussion, and he was not sorry when the hunter whose manners, to tell the truth, were very polite, placed the dispute on another footing. As for the present matter— said the Canadian. It is of minor importance, and we must settle it according to the rules of the chase. Our guns are of different calibre, and our balls can easily be distinguished. Let the fox belong to whichever of us really killed it. The proposition was a fair one, and the body of the victim was examined accordingly. One ball had entered at the side, the other at the heart, and the latter was from the gun of the Canadian. The fox is your property, sir said Jasper Hobson, vainly endeavouring to conceal his chagrin at seeing this valuable spoil fall into the enemy's hands. The Canadian took it, but instead of throwing it over his shoulder and carrying it off, he turned to Mrs. Barnett and said, 
Ladies are fond of beautiful furs, and although perhaps if they knew better what dangers and difficulties have to be surmounted in order to obtain them, they might not care so much about them. They are not likely to refuse to wear them on that account, and I hope, madam, you will favour me by accepting this one in remembrance of our meeting. Mrs. Barnett hesitated for a moment, but the gift was offered with so much courtesy and kindliness of manner that it would have seemed churlish to refuse, and she therefore accepted it with many thanks. This little ceremony over, the stranger again bowed politely, and followed by his comrades, quickly disappeared behind the rocks, whilst the lieutenant and his party returned to Fort Good Hope. Hobson was very silent and thoughtful all the way, for he could not but feel that the existence of a rival company would greatly compromise the success of his undertaking and lead to many future difficulties. End of chapter 16 Part 1, Chapter 17 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 17 The Approach of Winter It was the 21st of September. The sun was then passing through the autumnal equinox. That is to say, the day and night were of equal length all over the world. These successive alternations of light and darkness were hailed with delight by the inhabitants of the fort. It is easier to sleep in the absence of sun, and darkness refreshes and strengthens the eyes, weary with the unchanging brightness of several months of daylight. We know that during the equinox the tides are generally at their greatest height. We have high water or flood, for the sun and moon being in conjunction, their double influence is brought to bear upon the waters. It was therefore necessary to note carefully the approaching tide at Cape Bathurst. Jasper Hobson had made benchmarks some days before, so as to estimate exactly the amount of vertical displacement of the waters between high and low tide. He found, however, that in spite of all the reports of previous observers, the combined solar and lunar influence was hardly felt in this part of the Arctic Ocean. There was scarcely any tide at all, and the statements of navigators on the subject were contradicted. "'There is certainly something unnatural here,' said Lieutenant Hobson to himself. He did not, in fact, know what to think, but other cares soon occupied his mind, and he did not long endeavour to get to the rights of this singular peculiarity. On the twenty-ninth September, the state of the atmosphere changed considerably. The thermometer fell to forty-one degrees Fahrenheit, and the sky became covered with clouds, which were soon converted into heavy rain. The bad season was approaching. Before the ground should be covered with snow, Mrs. Joliffe was busy sowing the seeds of cochlearia, scurvy grass, and sorrel, in the hope that as they were very hardy, and would be well protected from the rigour of the winter by the snow itself, they would come up in the spring. Her garden, consisting of several acres, hidden behind the cliff of the cape, had been prepared beforehand, and it was sown during the last days of September. Hobson made his companions assume their winter garments before the great cold set in, and all were soon suitably clothed in the linen undervests, deerskin cloaks, sealskin pantaloons, fur bonnets, and waterproof boots 
with which they were provided. We may also say that the rooms were suitably dressed. The wooden walls were hung with skins in order to prevent the formation upon them of coats of ice in sudden falls of temperature. About this time, Ray set up his condensers for collecting the vapor suspended in the air, which were to be emptied twice a week. The heat of the stove was regulated according to the variations of the external temperature, so as to keep the thermometer of the rooms at fifty degrees Fahrenheit. The house would soon be covered with thick snow, which would prevent any waste of the internal warmth, and by this combination of natural and artificial protections, they hoped to be able successfully to contend with their two most formidable enemies, cold and damp. On the 2nd October, the thermometer fell still lower, and the first snow came on. There was but little wind, and there were therefore none of those violent whirlpools of snow called drifts. But a vast white carpet of uniform thickness soon clothed the cape, the encant of fort and the coast. The waters off the lake and sea, not yet petrified by the icy hand of winter, were of a dull, gloomy, greyish hue, and on the northern horizon the first icebergs stood out against the misty sky. The blockade had not yet commenced, but nature was collecting her materials, soon to be cemented by the cold into an impenetrable barrier. The young ice was rapidly forming on the liquid surfaces of sea and lake. The lagoon was the first to freeze over. Large, whitish-gray patches appeared here and there, signs of a hard frost setting in, favored by the calmness of the atmosphere. And after a night during which the thermometer had remained at fifteen degrees Fahrenheit, the surface of the lake was smooth and firm enough to satisfy the most fastidious skaters of the serpentine. On the verge of the horizon, the sky assumed that peculiar appearance which whalers call ice-blink, and which is the result of the glare of light reflected obliquely from the surface of the ice against the opposite atmosphere. Vast tracts of the ocean became gradually solidified. The ice-fields, formed by the accumulation of icicles, became welded to the coast, presenting a surface broken and distorted by the action of the waves, and contrasting strongly with the smooth mirror of the lake. Here and there floated these long pieces, scarcely cemented together at the edges, known as drift-ice, and the hummocks, or protuberances, caused by the squeezing of one piece against another, were also of frequent occurrence. In a few days the aspect of Cape Bathurst and the surrounding districts was completely changed. Mrs. Barnett's delight and enthusiasm knew no bounds. Everything was new to her, and she would have thought no fatigue or suffering too great to be endured for the sake of witnessing such a spectacle. She could imagine nothing more sublime than this invasion of winter with all its mighty forces, this conquest of the northern regions by the cold. All trace of the distinctive features of the country had disappeared. The land was metamorphed. A new country was springing into being before her admiring eyes, a country gifted with a grand and touching beauty. Details were lost. Only the large outlines were given scarcely marked out against the misty sky. One transformation scene followed another with magic rapidity. The ocean, which but lately lifted up its mighty waves, was hushed and still, 
The verdant soil of various hues was replaced by a carpet of dazzling whiteness. The woods of trees of different kinds were converted into groups of gaunt skeletons, draped in hoar-frost. The radiant orb of day had become a pale disk, languidly running its allotted course in the thick fog, and visible for but a few hours a day, whilst the sea-horizon, no longer clearly cut against the sky, was hidden by an endless chain of icebergs, broken into countless rugged forms, and building up that impenetrable ice-wall which nature has set up between the pole and the bold explorers who endeavour to reach it. We can well understand to how many discussions and conversations the altered appearance of the country gave rise. Thomas Black was the only one who remained indifferent to the sublime beauty of the scene. But what could one expect of an astronomer so wrapped up in his one idea that he might be said to be present in the little colony in the body but absent in spirit? He lived in the contemplation of the heavenly bodies, passing from the examination of one constellation to that of another, roving in imagination through the vast realms of space, peopled by countless radiant orbs, and fuming with rage when fogs or clouds hid the objects of his devotion from his sight. Hobson consoled him by promising him fine cold nights, admirably suited to astronomical observations, when he could watch the beautiful aurora borealis, the lunar halos, and other phenomena of polar countries worthy of his admiration. The cold was not at this time too intense. There was no wind, and it was the wind which makes the cold so sharp and biting. Hunting was vigorously carried on for some days. The magazines became stocked with new furs, and fresh stores of provisions were laid up. Partridges and ptarmigans, on their way to the south, passed over the fort in great numbers, and supplied fresh and wholesome meat. Polar or arctic hares were plentiful, and had already assumed their white winter robes. About a hundred of these rodents formed a valuable addition to the reserves of the colony. There were also huge flocks of the whistling swan or hooper, one of the finest species of North America. The hunters killed several couples of them, handsome birds four or five feet in length with white plumage, touched with copper colour on the head and upper part of the neck. They were on their way to a more hospitable zone, where they could find the aquatic plants and insects they required for food, and they sped through the air at a rapid pace, for it is as much their native element as water. Trumpeter swans, with a cry like the shrill tone of a clarion, which are about the same size as the hoopers, but have black feet and beaks, also passed in great numbers, but neither Marlborough nor Sabine were fortunate enough to bring down any of them. However, they shouted out, Au revoir, in significant tones, for they knew that they would return with the first breezes of spring, and that they could then easily be caught. Their skin, plumage, and down are all of great value, and they are therefore eagerly hunted. In some favourable years, Tens of thousands of them have been exported, fetching half a guinea apiece. During these excursions, which only lasted for a few hours, and were often interrupted by bad weather, packs of wolves were often met with. There was no need to go far to find them, for, rendered bold by hunger, 
They already ventured close to the factory. Their scent is very keen, and they were attracted by the smell from the kitchen. During the night they could be heard howling in a threatening manner. Although not dangerous individually, these carnivorous beasts are formidable in packs, and the hunters therefore took care to be well armed when they went out beyond the encant of the fort. The bears were still more aggressive. Not a day passed without several of these animals being seen. At night they would come close to the enclosure, and some were even wounded with shot, but got off, staining the snow with their blood, so that up to October 10th not one had left its warm and valuable fur in the hands of the hunters. Hobson would not have molested them, rightly judging that with such formidable creatures it was best to remain on the defensive, and it was not improbable that, urged on by hunger, they might attack Fort Hope before long. Then the little colony could defend itself, and provision its stores at the same time. For a few days the weather continued dry and cold. The surface of the snow was firm and suitable for walking, so that a few excursions were made, without difficulty, along the coast on the south of the fort. The lieutenant was anxious to ascertain if the agents of the St. Louis Fur Company had left the country. No traces were, however, found of their return march, and it was therefore concluded that they had gone down to some southern fort to pass the winter by another route. The few fine days were soon over, and in the first week of November the wind veered round to the south, making the temperature warmer, it is true, but also bringing heavy snowstorms. The ground was soon covered with a soft cushion, several feet thick, which had to be cleared away round the house every day, whilst a lane was made through it to the postern, the shed, and the stable of the dogs and reindeer. Excursions became more and more rare, and it was impossible to walk without snowshoes. When the snow has become hardened by frost, it easily sustains the weight of a man, but when it is soft and yielding, and the unfortunate pedestrian sinks into it to his knees, the snowshoes used by Indians are invaluable. Lieutenant Hobson and his companions were quite accustomed to walk in them, and could glide about over the snow as rapidly as skaters on ice. Mrs. Barnett had early practised wearing them, and was quite as expert in their use as the rest of the party. The frozen lake as well as the coast were scoured by these indefatigable explorers, who were even able to advance several miles from the shore on the solid surface of the ocean, now covered with ice several feet thick. It was, however, very tiring work, for the ice-fields were rugged and uneven, strewn with piled-up ridges of ice and hummocks, which had to be turned. Further out, a chain of icebergs, some five hundred feet high, barred their progress. These mighty icebergs, broken into fantastic and picturesque forms, were a truly magnificent spectacle. Here they looked like the whitened ruins of a town, with curtains battered in, and monuments and columns overthrown. There, like some volcanic land, torn and convulsed by earthquakes and eruptions, a confusion of glaciers and glittering ice-peaks, with snowy ramparts and buttresses, valleys and crevices, mountains and hillocks, tossed and distorted like the famous Alps of Switzerland. A few scattered birds, petrels, guillemots, and puffins, lingering behind their fellows, 
still enlivened the vast solitude with their piercing cries. Huge white bears roamed about amongst the hummocks, their dazzling coats scarcely distinguishable from the shining ice. Truly there was enough to interest and excite our adventurous lady-traveller, and even Madge, the faithful Madge, shared the enthusiasm of her mistress. How far, how very far, were both from the tropic zones of India or Australia. The frozen ocean was firm enough to have allowed of the passage of a park of artillery, or the erection of a monument, and many were the excursions on its surface, until the sudden lowering of the temperature rendered all exertion so exhausting that they had to be discontinued. The pedestrians were out of breath after taking a few steps, and the dazzling whiteness of the glittering snow could not be endured by the naked eye. Indeed, the reverberation or flickering glare of the undulatory reflection of the light from the surface of the snow has been known to cause several cases of blindness amongst the Eskimo. A singular phenomenon, due to the refraction of rays of light, was now observed. Distances, depths, and heights lost their true proportions. Five or six yards of ice looked like two, and many were the falls and ludicrous results of this optical illusion. On October 14th, the thermometer marked three degrees Fahrenheit below zero, a severe temperature to endure, especially when the north wind blows strongly. The air seemed to be made of needles, and those who ventured out of the house were in great danger of being frostbitten. When death or mortification would ensue, if the suspended circulation of the blood were not restored by immediate friction with snow, Gary, Belche, Hope, and other members of the little community were attacked by frostbite. But the parts affected, being rubbed in time, they escaped without serious injury. It will be readily understood that all manual labor had now become impossible. The days were extremely short. The sun was only above the horizon for a few hours, and the actual winter, implying entire confinement within doors, was about to commence. The last Arctic birds forsook the gloomy shores of the polar seas. Only a few pairs of those speckled quails remained, which the Indians appropriately call winter birds, because they wait in the Arctic regions until the commencement of the polar night. But they too were soon to take their departure. Lieutenant Hobson, therefore, urged on the setting of the traps and snares, which were to remain in different parts of Cape Bathurst throughout the winter. These traps consisted merely of rough joists, supported on a square, formed of three pieces of wood, so balanced as to fall on the least touch, in fact, the same sort of trap as that used for snaring birds in fields on a large scale. The end of the horizontal piece of wood was baited with venison, and every animal of a moderate height, a fox or a marten, for instance, when touched it with its paw, could not fail to be crushed. Such were the traps set in winter over a space of several miles by the famous hunters whose adventurous life has been so poetically described by Cooper. Some thirty of these snares were set around Fort Hope, and were to be visited at pretty frequent intervals. On the 12th November, a new member was born to the little colony. Mrs. McNabb was safely confined of a fine healthy boy, 
of whom the head carpenter was extremely proud. Mrs. Barnett stood godmother to the child, which received the name of Michael Hope. The ceremony of baptism was performed with considerable solemnity, and a kind of fete was held in honour of the little creature which had just come into the world beyond the seventieth degree north latitude. A few days afterwards, on November 20th, the sun sank below the horizon, not to appear again for two months. The polar night had commenced. End of chapter 17 Part 1, Chapter 18 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 18 The Polar Night The long night was ushered in by a violent storm. The cold was perhaps a little less severe, but the air was very damp and in spite of every precaution, the humidity penetrated into the house, and the condensers, which were emptied every morning, contained several pounds of ice. Outside drifts whirled past like water-spouts. The snow seemed no longer to fall horizontally, but vertically. The lieutenant was obliged to insist upon the door being kept shut, for had it been opened, the passages would immediately have become blocked up. The explorers were literally prisoners." The window-shutters were hermetically closed, and the lamps were kept burning through the long hours of the sleepless night. But although darkness reigned without, the noise of the tempest replaced the silence usually so complete in these high latitudes. The roaring of the wind between the house and the cliff never ceased for a moment. The house trembled to its foundations, and had it not been for the solidity of its construction, must have succumbed to the violence of the hurricane. Fortunately, the accumulation of snow round the walls broke the force of the squall, and McNab's only fear was for the chimneys, which were liable to be blown over. However, they remained firm, although they had constantly to be freed from snow which blocked up the openings. In the midst of the whistling of the wind, loud reports were heard, of which Mrs. Barnett could not conjecture the cause. It was the falling of icebergs in the offing. The echoes caught up the sounds, which were rolled along like the reverberations of thunder. The ground shook as the ice-fields split open, crushed by the falling of these mighty mountains, and none but those thoroughly inured to the horrors of these wild, rugged climates could witness these strange phenomena without a shudder. Lieutenant Hobson and his companions were accustomed to all these things, and Mrs. Barnett and Madge were gradually becoming so and were, besides, not altogether unfamiliar with those terrible winds which move at the rate of forty miles an hour, and overturn twenty-four-pounders. Here, however, the darkness and the snow aggravated the dread might of the storm. That which was not crushed was buried and smothered, and probably twelve hours after the commencement of the tempest, house, kennel, shed, and encant would have disappeared beneath a bed of snow of uniform thickness. The time was not wasted during this long imprisonment. All these good people agreed together perfectly, and neither ill-humour nor innuai marred the contentment of the little party shut up in such a narrow space. They were used to life under similar conditions at Fort's enterprise and reliance, 
and there was nothing to excite Mrs. Barnett's surprise in their ready accommodation of themselves to circumstances. Part of the day was occupied with work, part with reading and games. Garments had to be made and mended, arms to be kept bright and in good repair, boots to be manufactured, and the daily journal to be issued in which Lieutenant Hobson recorded the slightest events of this northern wintering, the weather, the temperature, the direction of the wind, the appearance of meteors so frequent in the polar regions, etc., etc. Then the house had to be kept in order, the rooms must be swept, and the stores of furs must be visited every day to see if they were free from damp. The fires and stoves, too, required constant superintendence, and perpetual vigilance was necessary to prevent the accumulation of particles of moisture in the corners. To each one was assigned a task. The duty of each one was laid down in rules fixed up in the large room, so that without being overworked the occupants of the fort were never without something to do. Thomas Black screwed and unscrewed his instruments, and looked over his astronomical calculations, remaining almost always shut up in his cabin, fretting and fuming at the storm, which prevented him from making nocturnal observations. The three married women had also plenty to see to. Mrs. McNabb busied herself with her baby, who got on wonderfully, whilst Mrs. Joliffe, assisted by Mrs. Ray, and with the corporal, always at her heels, presided in the kitchen. When work was done, the entire party assembled in the large room, spending the whole of Sunday together. Reading was the chief amusement. The Bible and some books of travel were the whole library of the fort, but they were all the good folks required. Mrs. Barnett generally read aloud, and her audience listened with delight. The Bible and accounts of adventures received a fresh charm when read out in her clear, earnest voice. Her gestures were so expressive that imaginary persons seemed to live when she spoke of them, and all were glad when she took up the book. She was, in fact, the life and soul of the little community, eager alike to give and receive instruction. She combined the charm and grace of a woman with the energy of a man, and she consequently became the idol of the rough soldiers, who would have willingly laid down their lives in her service. Mrs. Barnett shared everything with her companions, never holding herself aloof or remaining shut up in her cabin, but working zealously amongst the others, drawing out the most reticent by her intelligent questions and warm sympathy. Good humour and good health prevailed throughout the little community, and neither bands nor tongues were idle. The storm, however, showed no signs of abating. The party had now been confined to the house for three days, and the snowdrifts were as wild and furious as ever. Lieutenant Hobson began to get anxious. It was becoming imperatively necessary to renew the air of the rooms, which was too much charged with carbonic acid. The light of the lamps began to pale in the unhealthy atmosphere, and the air-pumps would not act, the pipes being choked up with ice. They were not, in fact, intended to be used when the house was buried in snow. It was necessary to take counsel. The lieutenant and Sergeant Long put their heads together, and it was decided on November 23rd that, as the wind beat with rather less violence on the front of the house, one of the windows at the end of the passage on that side should be opened. This was no light matter. It was easy enough to open the window from inside, but the shutter outside was encrusted over with thick lumps of ice. 
and resisted every effort to move it. It had to be taken off its hinges, and the hard mass of snow was then attacked with pickaxe and shovel. It was at least ten feet thick, and it was not until a kind of channel had been scooped out that the outer air was admitted. Hobson, the sergeant, several soldiers, and Mrs. Barnett herself ventured to creep through this tunnel or channel, but not without considerable difficulty, for the wind rushed in with fearful fury. What a scene was presented by Cape Bathurst and the surrounding plain! It was midday, and but a few faint twilight rays glimmered upon the southern horizon. The cold was not so intense as one would have supposed. And the thermometer marked only fifteen degrees Fahrenheit above zero, but the snowdrifts whirled along with terrific force, and all would inevitably have been thrown to the ground had not the snow in which they were standing up to their waists helped to sustain them against the gusts of wind. Everything around them was white; the walls of the encamp and the whole of the house, even to the roof, were completely covered over. And nothing but a few blue wreaths of smoke would have betrayed the existence of a human habitation to a stranger. Under the circumstances, the promenade was soon over, but Mrs. Barnett had made good use of her time and would never forget the awful beauty of the polar regions in a snowstorm—a beauty upon which few women had been privileged to look. A few moments sufficed to renew the atmosphere of the house. And all unhealthy vapors were quickly dispersed by the introduction of a pure and refreshing current of air. The lieutenant and his companions hurried in, and the window was again closed. But after that, the snow before it was removed every day, for the sake of ventilation. The entire week passed in a similar manner. Fortunately, the reindeer and dogs had plenty of food, so that there was no need to visit them. The eight days during which the occupants of the fort were imprisoned so closely could not fail to be somewhat irksome to strong men, soldiers, and hunters accustomed to plenty of exercise in the open air, and we must own that listening to reading aloud gradually lost its charm, and even cribbage became uninteresting. The last thought at night was a hope that the tempest might have ceased in the morning—a hope disappointed every day. Fresh snow constantly accumulated upon the windows. The wind roared. The icebergs burst with a crash like thunder. The smoke was forced back into the rooms, and there was no sign of a diminution of the fury of the storm. At last, however, on the twenty-eighth November, the aneroid barometer in the large room gave notice of an approaching change in the state of the atmosphere. It rose rapidly. Whilst the thermometer outside fell almost suddenly to less than four degrees below zero, these were symptoms which could not be mistaken. And on the twenty-ninth November, the silence all around the fort told that the tempest had ceased. Every one was eager to get out. The confinement had lasted long enough. The door could not be opened, and all had to get through the window and clear away the fresh accumulation of snow. This time, however, it was no soft mass they had to remove, but compact blocks of ice, which required pickaxes to break them up. It took about half an hour to clear a passage, and then every one in the fort, except Mrs. Macnab, who was not up yet, hastened into the interior court, glad once more to be able to walk about. 
The cold was still intense, but the wind having gone down, it was possible to endure it. Although great care was necessary to escape serious consequences on leaving the heated rooms for the open air, the difference between the temperature inside and outside being some fifty-four degrees. It was eight o'clock in the morning. Myriads of brilliant constellations studded the sky, and at the zenith shone the pole star. Although in both hemispheres there are in reality but five thousand fixed stars visible to the naked eye, their number appeared to the observers incalculable. Exclamations of admiration burst involuntarily from the lips of the delighted astronomer as he gazed into the cloudless heavens, once more undimmed by mists or vapors. Never had a more beautiful sky been spread out before the eyes of an astronomer. Whilst Thomas Black was raving in ecstasy, dead to all terrestrial matters, his companions had wandered as far as the encant. The snow was as hard as a rock, and so slippery that there were a good many tumbles. But no serious injuries. It is needless to state that the court of the fort was completely filled up. The roof of the house alone appeared above the white mass, the surface of which had been worn smooth by the action of the wind. Of the palisade, nothing was visible but the top of the stakes, and the least nimble of the wild animals they dreaded could easily have climbed over them. But what was to be done? It was no use to think of clearing away a mass of frozen snow, ten feet thick, extending over so large an extent of ground. All they could attempt would be to dig away the ice inside the encant, so as to form a kind of moat, the counterscarp of which would protect the palisade. But alas, the winter was only beginning, and a fresh tempest might at any time fill in the ditch in a few hours. Whilst the lieutenant was examining the works, which could no more protect his fort than a single sunbeam could melt the solid layer of snow, Mrs. Jolliffe suddenly exclaimed, "And our dogs, our reindeer!" It was indeed time to think about the poor animals. The dog-house and stable, being lower than the house, were probably entirely covered. The supply of air had perhaps been completely cut off. Some hurried to the dog-house. Others to the reindeer stable, and all fears were quickly dispelled. The wall of ice, which connected the northern corner of the house with the cliff, had partly protected the two buildings, and the snow round them was not more than four feet thick, so that the apertures left in the walls had not been closed up. The animals were all well, and when the door was open, the dogs rushed out, barking with delight. The cold was so intense that after an hour's walk, every one began to think of the glowing stove in the large room at home. There was nothing left to be done outside. The traps buried beneath ten feet of snow could not be visited, so all returned to the house. The window was closed, and the party sat down to the dinner, awaiting them with sharpened appetites. We can readily imagine that the conversation turned on the intensity of the cold. Which had so rapidly converted the soft snow into a solid mass, it was no light matter, and might, to a certain extent, compromise the safety of the little colony. But, Lieutenant said, Mrs. Barnett, can we not count upon a few days' thaw? Will not all this snow be rapidly converted into water? Oh no, madam," replied Hobson. "A thaw at this time of year is not at all likely. Indeed, I expect the thermometer will fall still lower. 
and it is very much to be regretted that we were unable to remove the snow when it was soft. What, you think the temperature likely to become much colder? I do most certainly, madam. Four degrees below zero. What is that in this latitude? What would it be if we were at the pole itself? The pole, madam, is probably not the coldest point of the globe, for most navigators agree that the sea is there open. From certain peculiarities of its geographical position, it would appear that a certain spot on the shores north of Georgia, ninety-five degree longitude and seventy-eight degree latitude, has the coldest mean temperature in the world, two degrees below zero all the year round. It is, therefore, called the pole of cold. But, said Mrs. Barnett, we are more than eight degrees further south than that famous point. Well, I don't suppose we shall suffer as much at Cape Bathurst as we might have done in North Georgia. I only tell you of the pole of cold, that you may not confound it with the pole properly so called, when the lowness of the temperature is discussed. Great cold has besides been experienced on other points of the globe. The difference is that the low temperature is not there maintained. To what places do you allude? inquired Mrs. Barnett. I assure you, I take the greatest interest in this matter of degrees of cold. As far as I can remember, madam, replied the lieutenant, Arctic explorers state that at Melville Island the temperature fell to sixty-one degrees below zero, and at Port Felix to sixty-five degrees. But Melville Island and Port Felix are some degrees further north latitude than Cape Bathurst, are they not? Yes, madam, but in a certain sense we may say that their latitude proves nothing. A combination of different atmospheric conditions is requisite to produce intense cold. Local and other causes largely modify climate. If I remember rightly, in 1845, Sergeant Long, you were at Fort Reliance at that date? Yes, sir, replied Long. Well, was it not in January of that year that the cold was so excessive? Yes, it was, I remember only too well, that the thermometer marked seventy degrees below zero. What? exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. At Fort Reliance? On the great slave lake? Yes, madam, replied the lieutenant. And that was at sixty-five degrees north latitude only, which is the same parallel as that of Christiania and St. Petersburg. Then we must be prepared for everything. Yes, indeed, we must when we winter in Arctic countries. During the twenty-ninth and thirtieth November, the cold did not decrease and it was necessary to keep up huge fires to prevent the freezing in all the corners of the house, of the moisture in the atmosphere. Fortunately there was plenty of fuel, and it was not spared. A mean temperature of fifty-two degrees Fahrenheit was maintained indoors, in spite of the intensity of the cold without. Thomas Black was so anxious to take stellar observations, now that the sky was so clear, that he braved the rigour of the outside temperature hoping to be able to examine some of the magnificent constellations twinkling on the zenith. But he was compelled to desist. His instruments burnt his hands. Burnt is the only word to express the sensation produced by touching a metallic body subjected to the influence of intense cold. Exactly similar results are produced by the sudden introduction of heat into an animate body, and the sudden withdrawal of the same from it as the astronomer found to his cost when he left the skin of his fingers on his instruments. 
he had to give up taking observations. However, the heavens made him the best amends in their power by displaying the most beautiful and indescribable phenomena of a lunar halo and an aurora borealis. The lunar halo was a white corona with a pale red edge, encircling the moon. This luminous meteor was about forty-five degrees in diameter, and was the result of the diffraction of the lunar rays through the small prismatic ice crystals floating in the atmosphere. The queen of the night shone with renewed splendor and heightened beauty from the center of the luminous ring, the color and consistency of which resembled the milky transparent lunar rainbows which have been so often described by astronomers. Fifteen hours later the heavens were lit up by a magnificent aurora borealis, the arch of which extended over more than a hundred geographical degrees. The vertex of this arch was situated in the magnetic meridian, and, as is often the case, the rays darted by the luminous meteor were of all colors of the rainbow, red predominating. Here and there the stars seemed to be floating in blood, glowing lines of throbbing color spread from the dark segment on the horizon, some of them passing the zenith and quelching the light of the moon in their electric waves, which oscillated and trembled as if swept by a current of air. No description could give an adequate idea of the glory which flushed the northern sky, converting it into a vast dome of fire. But after the magnificent spectacle had been enjoyed for about half an hour, it suddenly disappeared, not fading gradually away, after concentration of its rays, or a diminution of its splendor, but dying abruptly, as if an invisible hand had cut off the supply of electricity which gave it life. It was time it was over, for the sake of Thomas Black, for in another five minutes he would have been frozen where he stood. End of chapter 18 Part 1, Chapter 19 of The Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 19 A Neighborly Visit. On the 2nd December, the intensity of the cold decreased. The phenomena of the lunar halo and aurora borealis were symptoms which a meteorologist would have been at no loss to interpret. They implied the existence of a certain quantity of watery vapor in the atmosphere, and the barometer fell slightly, whilst the thermometer rose to fifteen degrees above zero. Although this temperature would have seemed very cold to the inhabitants of a temperate zone, it was easily endured by the colonists. The absence of wind made a great difference, and Hobson, having noticed that the upper layers of snow were becoming softer, ordered his men to clear it away from the outer approaches of the encant. McNabb and his subordinates set to work zealously, and completed their task in a few days. The traps were now uncovered and reset. A good many footprints showed that there were plenty of furred animals about the cape and as they could not get any other food, it was probable that the bait in the snares would soon attract them. In accordance with the advice of Marbra the hunter, a reindeer trap was constructed, that is, the Eskimo style. A trench was dug twelve feet deep, and of a uniform width of ten feet. A seesaw plank, 
which would rebound when lowered, was laid across it. A bait of herbs was placed at one end of the plank, and any animal venturing to take them was inevitably flung to the bottom of the pit, and the plank immediately returning to its former position would allow of the trapping of another animal in the same manner. Once in, there was no getting out. The only difficulty Marbre had to contend with in making his trap was the extreme hardness of the ground to be dug out. Both he and the lieutenant were not a little surprised at finding beneath some five feet of earth and sand a bed of snow, as hard as rock, which appeared to be very thick. After closely examining the geological structure of the ground, Hobson observed, This part of the coast must have been subject to intense cold for a considerable length of time a great many years ago. Probably the ice rests on a bed of granite, and the earth and sand upon it have accumulated gradually. Well, sir, our trap won't be any the worse for that. The reindeer will find a slippery wall, which will be impossible for them to climb. Marlborough was right, as the event proved. On the 5th September, he and Sabine were on their way to the trench, when they heard loud growls. They stood still and listened. "'It's no reindeer making that noise,' said Marlborough. "'I know well enough what creature has fallen into our pit.' "'A bear?' replied Sabine. "'Yes,' said Marlborough, whose eyes glistened with delight. "'Well,' remarked Sabine, "'we won't grumble at that. Bears' steaks are as good as reindeers, and we get the fur in. Come along.' The two hunters were armed. They quickly slipped balls into their guns, which were already loaded with lead, and hurried to the trap. The seesaw plank had swung back into its place, but the bait had disappeared, having probably been dragged down into the trench. The growls became louder and fiercer, and looking down the hunters saw that it was indeed a bear they had taken. A huge mass was huddled together in one corner of the pit, looking in the gloom like a pile of white fur with two glittering eyes. The sides of the trench had been ploughed up by the creature's sharp claws, and had they been of earth instead of ice, it would certainly have managed to scramble out, but it could get no hold on the slippery surface, and it had only managed to enlarge its prison, not to escape from it. Under the circumstances the capture was easy. Two balls, carefully aimed, put an end to the bear's life, and the next thing to do was to get it out of the pit. The two hunters returned to the fort, for reinforcements, and ten of the soldiers, provided with ropes, returned with them. It was not without considerable difficulty that the body was hauled up. It was a huge creature, six feet long, weighing six hundred pounds, and must have possessed immense strength. It belonged to the suborder of white bears, and had the flattened head, long neck, short and slightly curved claws, narrow muzzle, and smooth white fur, characteristic of the species. The edible portions of this valuable animal were confided to Mrs. Joliffe, and in her care carefully prepared for the table. The next week the traps were in full activity. Some twenty martins were taken, in all the beauty of their winter clothing, but only two or three foxes. These cunning creatures divined the snare laid for them, and scratching up the ground near the trap, they often managed to run off with the bait without being caught. This made Sabine beside himself with rage. He said, Such subterfuge was unworthy of a respectable fox. About the 10th December, the wind having veered round to the southwest, the snow again began to fall, but not in thick flakes or in large quantities. The wind, being high, however, 
the cold was severely felt, and it was necessary to settle indoors again and resume domestic occupations. Hobson distributed lime lozenges and lime juice to every one as a precaution against the scorbic affections which damp cold produces. No symptoms of scurvy had fortunately as yet appeared amongst the occupants of the fort, thanks to the sanitary precautions taken. The winter solstice was now approaching, when the darkness of the polar night would be most profound, as the sun would be at its lowest maximum point below the horizon of the northern hemisphere. At midnight the southern edges of the long white plains were touched with a faint glimmer of twilight, that was all, and it would be impossible to imagine anything more melancholy than the gloomy stillness and darkness of the vast expanse. Hobson felt more secure from the attacks of wild beasts, now that the approaches to the Enkent had been cleared of snow, which was a fortunate circumstance, as ominous growlings were heard, the nature of which no one could mistake. There was no fear of visits from Indian hunters or Canadians at this time of year, but an incident occurred proving that these districts were not altogether depopulated, even in the winter, and which was quite an episode in the long, dreary, dark months. Some human beings still lingered on the coast, hunting morses and camping under the snow. They belonged to the race of Eskimo, or eaters of raw flesh, which is scattered over the continent of North America, from Baffin's Bay to Bering Strait, seldom, however, advancing further south than the Great Slave Lake. On the morning of the 14th December, or rather nine hours before midday, Sergeant Long, on his return from an excursion along the coast, ended his report to the lieutenant by saying that if his eyes had not deceived him, a tribe of nomads were encamped about four miles from the fort, near a little cape jutting out from the coast. "'What do you suppose these nomads are?' inquired Hobson. "'Either men or morses,' replied the sergeant. "'There is no medium.' The brave sergeant would have been considerably surprised if any one had told him that some naturalists admit the existence of the medium. The idea which he scouted, and certain savants have with some humour classed the Eskimos as an intermediate species between roan and the sea-cow. Lieutenant Hobson, Mrs. Barnett, Madge, and a few others at once went to ascertain the truth of the report. Well wrapped up, and on their guard against a sudden chill, their feet cased in fur boots, and guns and hatchets in their hands, they issued from the postern, and made their way over the frozen snow along the coast, strewn with masses of ice. The moon, already in her last quarter, shed a few faint rays through the mists which shrouded the ice-fields. After marching for about an hour, the lieutenant began to think that the sergeant had been mistaken, and that what he had seen were morses, who had returned to their native element through the holes in the ice, which they always keep open. But Long, pointing to a grey wreath of smoke, curling out of a conical protuberance on the ice-field, some hundred steps off, contented himself with observing quietly, "'The morses are smoking, then?' As he spoke, some living creatures came out of the hut, dragging themselves along the snow. They were Eskimo, but whether male or female, none but a native could have said— for their costumes were all exactly alike. Indeed, without in the least sharing the opinion of the naturalist quoted above, any one might have mistaken the rough shaggy figures for seals, or some other amphibious animals. There were six of them, 
four full-grown and two children. Although very short, they were broad-chested and muscular. They had the flat noses, long eyelashes, large mouths, thick lips, long black coarse hair, and beardless chins of their race. Their costume consisted of a round coat made of the skins of walrus, a hood, boots, trousers, and mittens of the same material. They gazed at the Europeans in silence. "'Does any one understand Eskimo?' inquired the lieutenant. No one was acquainted with that idiom, and every one started when a voice immediately exclaimed in English, "'Welcome, welcome!' It was an Eskimo, and, as they learned later, a woman who, approaching Mrs. Barnett, held out her hand. The lady, much surprised, replied in a few words, which the native girl readily understood, and the whole family was invited to follow the Europeans to the fort." The Eskimo looked searchingly at the strangers, and after a few moments' hesitation they accompanied the lieutenant, keeping close together, however. Arrived at the encant, the native woman, seeing the house, of the existence of which she had had no idea, exclaimed, "'House! Snow-house!' She asked if it were made of snow, which was a natural question enough, for the house was all but hidden beneath the white mass which covered the ground." She was made to understand that it was built of wood. She then turned and said a few words to her companions, who made signs of acquiescence, and they all passed through the postern and were taken to the large room in the chief building. They removed their hoods, and it became possible to distinguish sexes. There were two men, about forty or fifty years old, with yellowish-red complexions, sharp teeth, and projecting cheekbones, which gave them something of the appearance of carnivorous animals. Two women, still young, whose matted hair was adorned with the teeth and claws of polar bears, and two children, about five or six years old, poor little creatures with intelligent faces, who looked about them with wide, wondering eyes. "'I believe the Eskimo are always hungry,' said Hobson, "'so I don't suppose our guests would object to a slice of venison.' In obedience to the lieutenant's order, Joliffe brought some reindeer venison, which the poor creatures devoured with greedy avidity, but the young woman, who had answered in English, behaved with greater refinement, and watched Mrs. Barnett and the women of the fort without once removing her eyes from them. Presently, noticing the baby in Mrs. McNabb's arms, she rose up and ran to it, speaking to it in a soft voice, and caressing it tenderly. Indeed, if not exactly superior, the young girl was certainly more civilized than her companions, which was especially noticeable when, being attacked by a slight fit of coughing, she put her hand before her mouth in the manner enjoined by the first rules of civilized society. This significant gesture did not escape any one, and Mrs. Barnett, who chatted for some time with the Eskimo woman, learned from her in a few short sentences that she had been for a year in the service of the Danish governor of Upper Navik, whose wife was English, and that she had left Greenland to follow her family to the hunting-grounds. The two men were her brothers. The other woman was her sister-in-law, married to one of the men, and mother of the two children. They were all returning from Melbourne Island, on the eastern coast of English America, and were making for Point Barrow, on the western coast of Russian America, the home of their tribe, 
and were considerably astonished to find a factory established on Cape Bathurst. Indeed, the two men shook their heads when they spoke of it. Did they disapprove of the construction of a fort at this particular point of the coast? Did they think the situation ill-chosen? In spite of all his endeavours, Hobson could get no satisfactory reply to these questions, or rather, he could not understand the answers he received. The name of the young girl was Kalumaha, and she seemed to have taken a great fancy to Mrs. Barnett. But sociable as she was, she appeared to feel no regret at having left the governor of Upper Navik, and to be sincerely attached to her relations. After refreshing themselves with the reindeer venison, and drinking half a pint of rum, in which the children had their share, the Eskimo took leave of their hosts, but before saying good-bye the young girl invited Mrs. Barnett to visit their snow-hut, and the lady promised to do so the next day, weather permitting. The next day was fine, and, accompanied by Madge, Lieutenant Hobson, and a few soldiers, well armed in case any bears should be prowling about, Mrs. Barnett set out for Cape Eskimo, as they had named the spot where the little colony had encamped. Kalumaha hastened forward to meet her friend of yesterday, and pointed to the hut with an air of pride. It was a large cone of snow, with an opening in the summit, through which the smoke from the fire inside made its way. These snow-houses, called igloos in the language of the Eskimo, are constructed with great rapidity, and are admirably suited to the climate. In them, their owners can endure a temperature forty degrees below zero, without fires, and without suffering much. In the summer the Eskimo encamp in tents, made of seal and reindeer skin, which are called tupics. It was no easy matter to get into this hut. The only opening was a hole close to the ground, and it was necessary to creep through a kind of passage three or four feet long, which is about the thickness of the walls of these snow-houses. But a traveller, by profession, a laureate of the Royal Society, could not hesitate, and Mrs. Paulina Barnett did not hesitate. Followed by Madge, she bravely entered the narrow tunnel, in imitation of her guide. Lieutenant Hobson and his men dispensed with paying their respects inside. And Mrs. Barnett soon discovered that the chief difficulty was not getting into the hut, but remaining in it when there. The room was heated by a fire of which the bones of morses were burning, and the air was full of the smell of the fetid oil of a lamp, of greasy garments, and the flesh of the amphibious animals, which formed the chief article of an Eskimo's diet. It was suffocating and sickening. Madge could not stand it, and hurried out at once. But Mrs. Barnett, rather than hurt the feelings of the young native, showed superhuman courage, and extended her visit over five long minutes five centuries. The two children and their mother were at home, but the men had gone to hunt morses four or five miles from their camp. Once out of the hut, Mrs. Barnett drew a long sigh of relief, and the colour returned to her blanched cheeks. "'Well, madam,' inquired the lieutenant, "'what do you think of Eskimo houses?' "'The ventilation leaves something to be desired,' she replied simply." The interesting native family remained encamped near Cape Eskimo for eight days. The men passed twelve hours out of every twenty-four hunting morses, with a patience 
which none but sportsmen could understand. They would watch for the amphibious animals, near the holes through which they come up to the surface of the ice-fields, to breathe. When the morse appears, a rope with a running noose is flung round its body, a little below the head, and it is dragged on to the ice-field, often with considerable difficulty, and killed with hatchets. It is really more like fishing than hunting. It is considered a great treat to drink the warm blood of the walrus, and the Eskimo often indulge in it to excess. Kalumaha came to the fort every day, in spite of the severity of the weather. She was never tired of going through the different rooms, and watching Mrs. Joliffe at her cooking or sewing. She asked the English name of everything, and talked for hours together with Mrs. Barnett, if the term talking can be applied to an exchange of words after long deliberation on both sides. When Mrs. Barnett read aloud, Kalumaha listened with great attention, although she probably understood nothing of what she heard. The young native girl had a sweet voice, and sometimes sang some strange melancholy, rhythmical songs with a peculiar meter, and, if we may so express it, a frosty ring about them, peculiarly characteristic of their origin. Mrs. Barnett had the patience to translate one of these Greenland sagas, which was sung to a sad air, interspersed with long pauses, and filled with strange intervals, which produced an indescribable effect. We give an English rendering of Mrs. Barnett's translation, which may give a faint idea of this strange hyperborean poetry. Greenland Song Dark is the sky, the sun sinks wearily, my trembling heart with sorrow filled aches drearily. My sweet child at my songs is smiling still, while his tender heart the icicles lie chill. Child of my dreams, I thy love doth cheer me. The cruel biting frost I brave, but to be near thee. Ah me, ah me, could these hot tears of mine but melt the icicles around that of thine. Could we once more meet heart to heart, thy little hands close clasped in mine, no more to part. Then on thy chill heart, rays from heaven above, should fall and softly melt it with the warmth of love. On the twentieth December, the Eskimo family came to take leave of the occupants of the fort. Kalumaha was sorry to part with Mrs. Barnett, who would gladly have retained her in her service. But the young native could not be persuaded to leave her own people. She promised, however, to return to Fort Hope in the summer. Her farewell was touching. She presented Mrs. Barnett with a copper ring, and received in exchange a necklace of black beads, which she immediately put on. Hobson gave the poor people a good stock of provisions, which they packed in their sledge, and after a few words of grateful acknowledgment from Kalumaha, the whole party set out towards the west, quickly disappearing in the thick fogs on the shore. End of chapter 19 Part 1, Chapter 20 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 20. Mercury Freezes. 
A few days of dry, calm weather favoured the operations of the hunters, but they did not venture far from the fort. The abundance of game rendered it unnecessary to do so, and Lieutenant Hobson could justly congratulate himself on having chosen so favourable a situation for the new settlement. A great number of furred animals of all kinds were taken in the traps, and Sabine and Marbra killed a good many polar hares. Some twenty starving wolves were shot. Hunger rendered the latter animals aggressive, and bands of them gathered about the fort, filling the air with hoarse howls, and amongst the hummocks on the ice-fields sometimes prowled huge bears, whose movements were watched with great interest. On the 25th December all excursions had again to be given up. The wind veered suddenly to the north and the cold became exceedingly severe. It was impossible to remain out of doors without being frost-bitten. The Fahrenheit thermometer fell to eighteen degrees below zero, and the gale roared like a volley of musketry. Hobson took care to provide the animals with food enough to last several weeks. Christmas Day, the day of home-gatherings, so dear to the heart of all Englishmen, was kept with due solemnity. The colonists returned thanks to God for preserving them through so many perils, and the workmen, who had a holiday in honour of the day, afterwards assembled with their masters and the ladies round a well-filled board on which figured two huge Christmas puddings. In the evening a huge bowl of punch flamed in the centre of the table. The lamps were put out, and for a time the room was lighted only by the livid flames of the spirit the familiar objects assuming strange fantastic forms. The spirits of the soldiers rose as they watched the flickering illumination, and their excitement was not lessened after imbibing some of the burning liquid. But now the flames began to pale. Bluish tongues still fitfully licked the plump sides of the national pudding for a few minutes, and then died away. Strange to say, although the lamps had not been relit, the room did not become dark on the extinction of the flames. A bright light was streaming through the window, which had passed unnoticed in the previous illumination. The revellers started to their feet, and looked at each other in astonishment. "'A fire!' cried several. But unless the house itself were burning, there could not be a fire anywhere near Cape Bathurst. The lieutenant rushed to the window, and at once understood the cause of the phenomenon. It was an eruption. Indeed, above the western cliffs, beyond Walrus's Bay, the horizon was on fire. The summits of the igneous hills, some miles from Cape Bathurst, could not be seen, but the sheaf of flame shot up to a considerable height, lighting up the whole country in a weird, unearthly manner. "'It is more beautiful than the Aurora Borealis!' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett. Thomas Black indignantly protested against this assertion. A terrestrial phenomenon more beautiful than a meteor? But no one was disposed to argue with him about it, for all hurried out, in spite of the bitter gale and biting cold, to watch the glorious spectacle of the flashing sheaf of flames standing out against the black background of the night sky. Had not the mouths and ears of the party been cased in furs, 
they would have been able to hear the rumbling noise of the eruption, and to tell each other of the impressions made upon them by this magnificent sight. But, as it was, they could neither speak nor hear. They might be well content, however, with gazing upon such a glorious scene, a scene which once looked upon could never be forgotten. The glowing sheets of flames contrasted alike with the gloomy darkness of the heavens and the dazzling whiteness of the far-stretching carpet of snow, and produced effects of light and shade which no pen or pencil could adequately portray. The throbbing reverberations spread beyond the zenith, gradually quenching the light of all the stars. The white ground became dashed with golden tints. The hummocks on the ice-field and the huge icebergs in the background reflecting the glimmering colors like so many glowing mirrors. The rays of light striking on the edges or surfaces of the ice became bent and diffracted, the angles and varying inclinations on which they fell, fretting them into fringes of color and reflecting them back with changed and heightened beauty. It was like a fairy scene in which ice and snow combined to add eclat to a melee of rays in which luminous waves rushed upon each other, breaking into colored ripples. But the excessive cold soon drove the admiring spectators back to their warm dwelling, and many a nose paid dearly for the feast enjoyed by the eyes. During the following days the cold became doubly severe. The mercurial thermometer was of course no longer of any use for marking degrees, and an alcohol thermometer had to be used. On the night of the 28th to the 29th December, the column fell to 32 degrees below zero. The stoves were piled up with fuel, but the temperature in the house could not be maintained above 20 degrees. The bedrooms were exceedingly cold, and ten feet from the stove in the large room, its heat could not be felt at all. The little baby had the warmest corner, and its cradle was rocked in turn by those who came to the fire. Opening doors or windows was strictly forbidden, as the vapour in the rooms would immediately have been converted to snow, and in the passage the breathing of the inmates already produced that result. Every now and then dull reports were heard, which startled those unaccustomed to living in such high latitudes. They were caused by the cracking of the trunks of trees, of which the walls were composed, under the influence of the intense cold. The stock of rum and gin, stowed away in the garret, had to be brought down into the sitting-room, as the alcohol was freezing and sinking to the bottom of the bottles. The spruce-beer, made from a decoction of young fir-branchlets, burst the barrels in which it was kept as it froze, whilst all the solid bodies resisted the introduction of heat, as if they were petrified. Wood burnt very slowly, and Hobson was obliged to sacrifice some of the walrus oil to quicken its combustion. Fortunately, the chimneys drew well, so that there was no disagreeable smell inside, although for a long distance outside the air was impregnated with the fetid odour of the smoke from Fort Hope, which a casual observer might therefore have pronounced an unhealthy building. One symptom we must notice was the great thirst from which every one suffered. To relieve it, different liquids had to be melted at the fire, for it would have been dangerous to eat ice. Another effect of the cold was intense drowsiness, which Hobson, 
earnestly entreated his companions to resist. Some appeared unable to do so, but Mrs. Barnett was invaluable in setting an example of constant activity. Always brave, she kept herself awake, and encouraged others by her kindness, brightness, and sympathy. Sometimes she read aloud accounts of travels, or sang some old familiar English song, in the chorus of which all joined. These joyous strains roused up the sleepers, whether they would or no, and their voices soon swelled with the chorus. The long days of imprisonment passed wearily by, and the lieutenant, consulting the outside thermometer through the windows, announced that the cold was still on the increase. On the 31st December, the mercury was all frozen hard in the cistern of the instrument, so that the temperature was 44 degrees below freezing point. The next day, 1st January, 1860, Lieutenant Thompson wished Mrs. Barnett a happy new year, and complimented her on the courage and good temper with which she endured the miseries of this northern winter. The astronomer was not forgotten in the universal interchange of good wishes amongst the members of the little colony, but his only thought on entering another year was that it was the beginning of that in which the great eclipse was to take place. Fortunately, the general health still remained good, and any symptoms of scurvy were promptly checked by the use of lime-juice and lime-lozenges. It would not do, however, to rejoice too soon. The winter had still to last three months. The sun would doubtless reappear above the horizon in due time, but there was no reason to think that the cold had reached its maximum intensity. Especially as in most northern countries, February is the month during which the temperature falls lowest. However that might be, there is no decrease in the severity of weather during the first days of the new year, and on the 8th January the alcohol thermometer placed outside the window of the passage marked 66 degrees below zero. A few degrees more, and the minimum temperature at Fort Reliance in 1835 would be reached. Jasper Hobson grew more and more uneasy at the continued severity of the cold. He began to fear that the furred animals would have to seek a less rigorous climate further south, which would, of course, thwart all his plans for hunting in the early spring. Moreover, he sometimes heard subterranean rumblings, which were evidently connected with the volcanic eruption. The western horizon still glowed with the reflection of the burning lava, and it was evident that some great convulsion was going on in the bowels of the earth. Might not the close vicinity of an active volcano be dangerous to the new fort? Such was the question which the subterranean rumblings forced upon the mind of the lieutenant, but he kept his vague apprehensions to himself. Of course, under these circumstances, no one dreamt of leaving the house. The animals were well provided for, and being accustomed to long fasts in the winter, required no attention from their masters, so that there were really no necessity for any exposure out of doors. It was difficult enough to endure the inside temperature, even with the help of a plentiful combustion of wood and oil, for, in spite of every precaution, damp crept into the ill-ventilated rooms, and layers of ice, increasing in thickness every day, were formed upon the beams. The condensers were choked up, 
and one of them burst from the pressure of the ice. Lieutenant Hobson did not spare his fuel. He was, in fact, rather lavish of it in his anxiety to raise the temperature, which, when the fires got low, as of course sometimes happened, fell to fifteen degrees Fahrenheit. The men on guard, who relieved each other every hour, had strict orders to keep up the fires, and great was the dismay of the lieutenant when Sergeant Long said to him one day, "'We shall be out of wood soon.' "'Out of wood?' exclaimed Hobson. "'I mean, our stock is getting low, and we must lay in fresh stores soon.' "'Of course I know, though, that it will be at the risk of his life that anyone goes out in this cold.' "'Yes,' Hobson replied. "'It was a mistake not to build the wooden shed close to the house, and to make no direct communication with it. I see that now it is too late. I ought not to have forgotten that we were going to winter beyond the seventieth parallel.' but what's done can't be undone. How long will the wood last? There is enough to feed the furnace and stove for another two or three days, replied the sergeant. Let us hope that by that time the severity of the cold may have decreased, and that we may venture across the court of the fort without danger. I doubt it, sir, replied Long, shaking his head. The atmosphere is very clear, the wind is still in the north, and I shall not be surprised if this temperature is maintained for another fifteen days, until the new moon, in fact. "'Well, my brave fellow,' said the lieutenant, "'we won't die of cold if we can help it, and the day we have to brave the outside air.' "'We will brave it, sir,' said Long. Hobson pressed his subordinate's hand, well knowing the poor fellow's devotion. We might fancy that Hobson and the sergeant were exaggerating when they alluded to the fatal results from sudden exposure to the open air. But they spoke from experience, gained from long residence in the rigorous polar regions. They had seen strong men fall fainting on the ice under similar circumstances. Their breath failed them, and they were taken up in a state of suffocation. Incredible as such facts may appear, they have been of frequent occurrence amongst those who have wintered in the extreme north. In their journey along the shores of Hudson's Bay in 1746, Moore and Smith saw many incidents of this kind. Some of their companions were killed, struck down by the cold, and there can be no doubt that sudden death may result from braving a temperature in which mercury freezes. Such was the distressing state of things at Fort Hope when a new danger arose to aggravate the sufferings of the colonists. End of chapter 20 Part 1, Chapter 21 of The Fur Country This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne Part 1, Chapter 21 The Large Polar Bears The only one of the four windows through which it was possible to look into the court of the fort was that opening at the end of the entrance passage. The outside shutters had not been closed, but before it could be seen through it had to be washed with boiling water, as the panes were covered with a thick coating of ice. This was done several times a day by the lieutenant's orders when the districts surrounding the fort were carefully examined, and the state of the sky and of the alcohol thermometer placed outside were accurately noted. 
On the 6th January, towards eleven o'clock in the morning, Killet, whose turn it was to look out, suddenly called the sergeant and pointed to some moving masses indistinctly visible in the gloom. Long, approaching the window, observed quietly, "'They are bears.' In fact, half a dozen of these formidable animals had succeeded in getting over the palisades, and, attracted by the smoke from the chimneys, were advancing upon the house." On hearing of the approach of the bears, Hobson at once ordered the window of the passage to be barricaded inside. It was the only unprotected opening in the house, and when it was secured it appeared impossible for the bears to effect an entrance. The window was, therefore, quickly closed up with bars, which the carpenter MacNab wedged firmly in, leaving a narrow slit through which to watch the movements of the unwelcome visitors." now observed the head carpenter these gentlemen can't get in without our permission and we can have time to hold a council of war well lieutenant exclaimed mrs barnett nothing has been wanting to our northern winter after the cold come the bears not after replied the lieutenant but which is a serious matter with the cold and a cold so intense that we cannot venture outside I really don't know how we shall get rid of those tiresome brutes. I suppose they will soon get tired of prowling about, said the lady, and return as they came. Hobson shook his head, as if he had his doubts. You don't know these animals, madam. They are famished with hunger, and will not go until we make them. Are you anxious, then? Yes and no, replied the lieutenant. I don't think the bears will get in but neither do I see how we can get out, should it become necessary for us to do so. With these words, Hobson turned to the window, and Mrs. Barnett joined the other women who had gathered round the sergeant, and were listening to what he had to say about the bears. He spoke like a man well up in his subject, for he had had many an encounter with these formidable, carnivorous creatures, which are often met with even towards the south where, however, they can be safely attacked, whilst here the siege would be a regular blockade, for the cold would quite prevent any attempt at a sortie. Throughout the whole day the movements of the bears were attentively watched. Every now and then one of them would lay his great head against the window-pane, and an ominous growl was heard. The lieutenant and Sergeant Long took counsel together, and it was agreed that if their enemies showed no sign of beating a retreat, they would drill a few loopholes in the walls of the house and fire at them. But it was decided to put off this desperate measure for a day or two, as it was desirable to avoid giving access to the outer air, the inside temperature being already far too low. The walrus oil to be burnt was frozen so hard that it had to be broken up with hatchets. The day passed without any incident. The bears went and came, prowling round the house, but attempting no direct attack. Watch was kept all night, and at four o'clock in the morning they seemed to have left the court. At any rate they were nowhere to be seen. But about seven o'clock Marlborough went up to the loft to fetch some provisions, and on his return announced that the bears were walking about on the roof. Hobson, the sergeant, MacNab, and two or three soldiers seized their arms and rushed to the ladder in the passage, which communicated with the loft by a trap-door. The cold was, however, so intense in the loft that the men could not hold the barrels of their guns, and their breath froze as it left their lips, 
and floated about them as snow. Marlborough was right. The bears were all on the roof, and the sound of their feet and their growls could be distinctly heard. Their great claws caught in the lays of the roof beneath the ice, and there was some danger that they might have sufficient strength to tear away the woodwork. The lieutenant and his men, becoming giddy and faint from the intense cold, were soon obliged to go down, and Hobson announced the state of affairs in as hopeful a tone as he could assume. The bears, he said, are now upon the roof. We ourselves have nothing to fear, as they can't get into our rooms. But they may force an entrance to the loft, and devour the furs stowed away there. Now these furs belong to the company, and it is our duty to preserve them from injury. I ask you then, my friends, to aid me in removing them to a place of safety. All eagerly volunteered, and relieving each other in parties of two or three, for none could have supported the intense severity of the cold for long at a time. They managed to carry all the furs into the large room in about an hour. Whilst the work was proceeding, the bears continued their efforts to get in, and tried to lift up the rafters of the roof. In some places, the lays became broken by their weight, and poor MacNab was in despair. He had not reckoned upon such a contingency when he had constructed the roof, and expected to see it give way every moment. The day passed, however, without any change in the situation. The bears did not get in, but a no less formidable enemy, the cold, gradually penetrated into every room. The fires in the stoves burnt low. The fuel in reserve was almost exhausted, and before twelve o'clock the last piece of wood would be burnt and the genial warmth of the stove would no longer cheer the unhappy colonists. Death would then await them, death in its most fearful form, from cold. The poor creatures, huddled together round the stove, felt that their own vital heat must soon become exhausted, but not a word of complaint passed their lips. The women bore their sufferings with the greatest heroism, and Mrs. MacNab pressed her baby convulsively to her ice-cold breast. Some of the soldiers slept, or rather were wrapped in a heavy tupor, which could scarcely be called sleep. At about three o'clock in the morning, Hobson consulted the thermometer hanging in the large room, about ten feet from the stove. It was marked four degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The lieutenant pressed his hand to his forehead, and looked mournfully at his silent companions without a word. His half-condensed breath shrouded his face in a white cloud, and he was standing rooted to the spot when a hand was laid upon his shoulder. He started and looked round to see Mrs. Barnett beside him. "'Something must be done, Lieutenant Hobson,' exclaimed the energetic woman. "'We cannot die like this without an effort to save ourselves.' "'Yes,' replied the lieutenant, feeling revived by the moral courage of his companion. "'Yes, something must be done.' and he called together Long, MacNab, and Ray, the blacksmith, and the bravest men in his party. Altogether, with Mrs. Barnett, hastened to the window, and having washed the panes with boiling water, they consulted the thermometer outside. Seventy-two degrees!' cried Hobson. "'My friends, two courses are only open to us. We can risk our lives to get a fresh supply of fuel, or we can burn the benches, beds, partition walls, and everything in the house to feed our stoves for a few days longer. A desperate alternative, for the cold may last some time yet. There is no sign of a change in the weather.' 
"'Let us risk our lives to get fuel,' said Sergeant Long. All agreed that it would be the best course, and without another word each one set to work to prepare for the emergency. The following were the precautions taken to save the lives of those who were about to risk themselves for the sake of the general good. The shed in which the wood was stored was about fifty steps on the left, behind the principal house. It was decided that one of the men should try and run to the shed. He was to take one rope, wound round his body, and to carry another in his hand, one end of which was to be held by one of his comrades. Once in the shed, he was to load one of the sledges there with fuel, and tie the rope to the front, and the other to the back of the vehicle, so that it could be dragged backwards and forwards between the house and the shed without much danger. A tug, violently shaking one or the other cord, would be the signal that the sledge was filled with fuel at the shed, or unloaded at the house. A very clever plan, certainly, but two things might defeat it. The door of the shed might be so blocked up with ice that it would be very difficult to open it, or the bears might come down from the roof and prowl about the court. Two risks to be run. Long, McNabb, and Ray, all three volunteered for the perilous service, but the sergeant reminded the other two that they were married, and insisted upon being the first to venture. When the lieutenant expressed a wish to go himself, Mrs. Barnett said earnestly, "'You are a chief. "'You have no right to expose yourself. "'Let Sergeant Long go.' "'Hobson could not but realize "'that his office imposed caution, "'and being called upon to decide "'which of his companions should go. "'He chose the sergeant. "'Mrs. Barnett pressed the brave man's hand "'with ill-concealed emotion, "'and the rest of the colonists, "'asleep or stupefied, knew nothing of the attempt about to be made to save their lives. Two long ropes were got ready. The sergeant wound one round his body above the warm furs, worth some thousand pounds sterling, in which he was encased, and tied the other to his belt, on which he hung a tinder-box and a loaded revolver. Just before starting, he swallowed down half a glass of rum, as he said to himself, "'To ensure a good load of wood.' Hobson, Ray, and McNabb accompanied the brave fellow through the kitchen, where the fire had just gone out, and into the passage. Ray climbed up to the trap-door of the loft, and peeping through it, made sure that the bears were still on the roof. The moment for action had arrived. One door of the passage was open, and in spite of the thick furs in which they were wrapped, all felt chilled to the very marrow of their bones. And when the second door was pushed open, they recoiled for an instant, panting for breath, whilst the moisture, held in suspension in the air of the passage, covered the walls and the floor with fine snow. The weather outside was extremely dry, and the stars shone with extraordinary brilliancy. Sergeant Long rushed out without a moment's hesitation, dragging the cord behind him, one end of which was held by his companions. The outer door was pushed too, and Hobson, McNabb, and Ray went back to the passage and closed the second door, behind which they waited. If Long did not return in a few minutes, they might conclude that his enterprise had succeeded, and that, safe in the shed, he was loading the first train with fuel. Ten minutes at the most ought to suffice for this operation, 
if he had been able to get the door open. When the sergeant was fairly off, Hobson and McNabb walked together towards the end of the passage. Meanwhile, Ray had been watching the bears in the loft. It was so dark that all hoped Long's movements would escape the notice of the hungry animals. Ten minutes elapsed, and the three watchers went back to the narrow space between the two doors, waiting for the signal to be given to drag in the sledge. Five minutes more, the cord remained motionless in their hands. Their anxiety can be imagined. It was a quarter of an hour since the sergeant had started, plenty of time for all he had to do, and he had given no signal. Hobson waited a few minutes longer, and then, tightening his hold of the end of the rope, he made a sign to his companions to pull with him. If the load of wood were not quite ready, the sergeant could easily stop it from being dragged away. The rope was pulled vigorously. A heavy object seemed to slide along the snow. In a few moments it reached the outer door. It was the body of the sergeant with the rope round his waist. Poor Long had never reached the shed. He had fallen fainting to the ground, and after twenty minutes' exposure, to such a temperature there was little hope that he would revive. A cry of grief and despair burst from the lips of McNabb and Ray. They lifted their unhappy comrade from the ground, and carried him into the passage. But as the lieutenant was closing the outer door, something pushed violently against it, and a horrible growl was heard. "'Help!' cried Hobson. McNabb and Ray rushed to their officer's assistance, but Mrs. Barnett had been beforehand with them and was struggling with all her strength to help Hobson to close the door. In vain the monstrous brute, throwing the whole weight of its body against it, would force its way into the passage in another moment. Mrs. Barnett, whose presence of mind did not forsake her now, seized one of the pistols in the lieutenant's belt and waited quietly until the animal shoved its head between the door and the wall, discharged the contents into its open mouth. The bear fell backwards, mortally wounded, no doubt, and the door was shut and securely fastened. The body of the sergeant was then carried into the large room, but alas, the fire was dying out. How was it possible to restore the vital heat with no means of obtaining warmth? "'I will go, I will go and fetch some wood,' cried the blacksmith ray. "'Yes, Ray, we will go together,' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, whose courage was unabated. "'No, my friends, no,' cried Hobson. "'You will fall victims to the cold, or the bears, or both. "'Let us burn all there is to burn in the house, and leave the rest to God.' And the poor half-frozen settlers rose and laid about them with their hatchets, like madmen. Benches, tables, and partition walls were thrown down, broken up, crushed to pieces, and piled up in the stove of the large room and kitchen furnace. Very soon good fires were burning, on which a few drops of walrus oil were poured, so that the temperature of the rooms quickly rose a dozen degrees. Every effort was made to restore the sergeant. He was rubbed with warm rum, and gradually the circulation of his blood was restored. The white blotches, with which parts of his body were covered, began to disappear but he had suffered dreadfully, and several hours elapsed before he could articulate a word. He was laid in a warm bed, and Mrs. Barnett and Madge watched by him until the next morning. Meanwhile, 
Hobson, McNabb, and Ray consulted how best to escape from their terrible situation. It was impossible to shut their eyes to the fact that in two days this fresh supply of fuel would be exhausted, and then, if the cold continued, what would become of them all? The new moon had risen forty-eight hours ago, and there was no sign of a change in the weather. The north wind still swept the face of the country with its icy breath. The barometer remained at fine dry weather, and there was not a vapour to be seen above the endless succession of ice-fields. There was reason to fear that the intense cold would last a long time yet, but what was to be done? Would it do to try once more to get to the woodshed when the bears had been roused by the shot and rendered doubly dangerous? Would it be possible to attack these dreadful creatures in the open air? No, it would be madness and certain death for all. Fortunately, the temperature of the rooms had now become more bearable, and in the morning Mrs. Jolive served up a breakfast of hot meat and tea. Hot grog was served out, and the brave sergeant was able to take his share. The heat from the stoves warmed the bodies and reanimated the drooping courage of the poor colonists, who were now ready to attack the bears at a word from Hobson. But the lieutenant, thinking the forces unequally matched, would not risk the attempt, and it appeared likely that the day would pass without any incident worthy of note, when at about three o'clock in the afternoon a great noise was heard on the top of the house. "'There they are!' cried two or three soldiers, hastily arming themselves with hatchets and pistols. It was evident that the bears had torn away one of the rafters of the roof, and got into the loft. "'Let every one remain where he is!' cried the lieutenant. "'Ray the trap!' The blacksmith rushed into the passage, scaled the ladder, and shut and securely fastened the trap-door. A dreadful noise was now heard, growling, stamping of feet, and tearing of claws. It was doubtful whether the danger of the anxious listeners was increased, or the reverse. Some were of the opinion that if all the bears were in the loft it would be easier to attack them. They would be less formidable in a narrow space, and there would not be the same risk of suffocation from cold. Of course, a conflict with such fierce creatures must still be very perilous but it no longer appeared so desperate as before. It was now debated whether it would be better to go and attack the besiegers, or to remain on the defensive. Only one soldier could get through the narrow trap-door at a time, and this made Hobson hesitate, and finally resolve to wait. The sergeant and others, whose bravery none could doubt, agreed that he was in the right, and it might be possible that some new incident would occur, to modify the situation. It was almost impossible for the bears to break through the beams of the ceiling, as they had the rafters of the roof, so that there was little fear that they would get on to the ground floor. The day passed by in anxious expectation, and at night no one could sleep for the uproar made by the furious beasts. The next day, about nine o'clock, a fresh complication compelled Hobson to take active steps. He knew that the pipes of the stove and kitchen furnace ran all along the loft, and being made of lime bricks, but imperfectly cemented together, they could not resist great pressure for any length of time, 
Now some of the bears scratched at the masonry, while others leant against the pipes for the sake of the warmth from the stove, so that the bricks began to give way, and soon the stoves and furnace ceased to draw. This really was an irreparable misfortune, which would have disheartened less energetic men. But things were not yet at their worst. While the fire became lower and lower, a thick, nauseous, acrid smoke filled the house. The pipes were broken, and the smoke soon became so thick that the lamps went out. Hobson now saw that he must leave the house if he wished to escape suffocation. But to leave the house would be to perish with cold. At this fresh misfortune, some of the women screamed, and Hobson, seizing a hatchet, shouted in a loud voice, "To the bears! To the bears, my friends!" It was the forlorn hope these terrible creatures must be destroyed. All rushed into the passage and made for the ladder. Hobson leading the way, the trap door was opened, and a few shots were fired into the black whirlpool of smoke. Mingled howls and screams were heard, and blood began to flow on both sides. But the fearful conflict was waged in profound darkness. In the midst of the melee, a terrible rumbling sound suddenly drowned the tumult. The ground became violently agitated, and the house rocked as if it were being torn up from its foundations. The beams of the walls separated. And through the openings, Hobson and his companions saw the terrified bears rushing away into the darkness, howling with rage and fright. End of chapter twenty-one.